Lord for his presence today. Come on, amen. I mean, I'm saying that not as filler. This is authentic. Thank God for his presence today. I thank the Lord for your presence by being here and bringing your faith, your sincere worship, your commitment to Christ, your commitment to each other, your commitment to the Word of God, your commitment to, to give, your commitment to receive, and uh, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate our worship team, don't you? Come on, amen, and their, their sincere heart, their humbled heart of praise, they want to lead us in worship, and that's from our musicians to our singers to our bearded psalmist. So we're just grateful. They're, they, don't, they don't strive for entertainment. Hello? Right? They, they seek to just worship, and their hope is that you choose to worship with them. And I just thank God we have that opportunity. You're here today, and I appreciate you being here. God's doing something in our church during unsettling times, isn't he? He really is. People are coming. Um, our numbers have kind of grown back to almost pre-COVID days, and uh, we've got a, a, a different audience now. More people are coming in from, that haven't come from a historical Pentecostal um, you know, background. We try to explain things along the way. We had a message, what we call a message in tongues here at the church just a few minutes ago with the interpretation. And I'm telling you, I felt Jesus walking up and down these aisles, didn't you? And the word, the word that God sent an unsettling times that God's, God's got you covered. He does. Right? That's what atonement means. A covering. He's got us covered today. So I appreciate again. I'm going to go ahead and preach. You know, us pastors, oftentimes you have such a sweet fragrance of Christ in the building like this, you get caught whether, you know, to just continue in worship or to preach, but I'm going to trust that my preparation was part of this worship service. God designed this for me to be able to share some things with you. You may say, Pastor, that's awful spiritual to make such, you know, far-reaching statements. Well, I'll just have to, uh, you know, let it be as it is, I, say, I, I suppose. Um, if you're a visitor, though, thank you for being in service with us today. I really appreciate it. I do want to always encourage you as a church family, again, and also for visitors, if you, don't fill out, if you haven't filled out a visitor card, we would like to have a record of your visit. It's a, it's a card in front of you in the seat. You can fill it out, and you can put it on the table in the foyer. would be fine. We'll give it to a pastor. We'd like to have that record. I do want to remind you that the offering container is nailed to the door in the, sang or in the foyer. A lot of people have gone to online giving, and uh, we appreciate everyone's faithfulness in giving. You know, um, today I'm going to be in part two of a message series that I've entitled Cultural Controversies. Now, I know that this Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and in that sense, I uh, would normally preach a message about being thankful, and all, which is a very much a part of our heart's desire as Christians, correct? We're thankful to God. But I, I, I just have been in this vein, and I can't separate from it. There's too many uh, cultural controversies that are happening around us for the church to be muted. Now, the reason why that the culture wants the church muted is because they want the microphone only. They want to influence you through media. They want to influence you through television, through movies, through um, through school instructors, both at the high school and certainly the university level, not just high school, all the way down to grade school many times. They want to influence your children's way of thinking and your way of thinking, but they don't want the church to have an opportunity to be able to give some counterbalance to this. Now, I recognize that as a pastor, I have a responsibility to take uh, cultural culturally relevant issues and somehow connect them to historic doctrines and yet find a safe place for it, find a way that it is relevant to you where you can see this not just through the lens of history or not just through the lens of modern relevancy, but somehow we pull those two together, right? That's in that our objective, Dr. Brassfield, that's our objective here as ministers of the gospels. And so we're going to read several passages just quickly today. To set the context for you. Now, I've chosen to take before I these cultural issues that I'm going to be ministering on over the next several weeks before they kind of unfold in front of us. I've 
I've started with what I call the two, the two moral issues. Now, morality it has variations, obviously, and can often be held at the viewpoint of the individual. But the two that I've started with last week was abortion, very difficult subject for a pastor to even mention. Because I don't know who's in the, in the congregation from week to week. I don't know everybody's personal experiences, and I would not in any way, if a person or a young lady may have had an abortion at one particular time. So I'm just, I'm talking out loud for you. And she may have, have, have felt, felt sorrow at a different time and maybe even truly repented, and she's come to the church and the word or the way I say something could possibly be misconstrued and she's suddenly smitten with grief or condemnation. You t- let me tell you, that, that, I, I don't want to see that in any capacity. And to, to my sermons, uh, in, in, as I uh, dialogue with these cultural, these cultural controversies, I'm hoping to be as gentle, as gentle as I can in, in the sense of praying that the Holy Spirit does healing work in the heart and lives of individuals. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. And, but I also want you to know, despite the risk, I can't, I can't allow myself to not address these things just because there's the risk that someone could possibly misconstrue what I say. Okay? So I'm trying to be very transparent in front of you because I want you to see how and, and I've chosen to go into cult, cultural controversies through the teachings of Jesus. Not as much through the epistles or not as much through the old covenant, but we'll be in both of those today. But we're also going to be in the gospels. We're trying to find this place and say, what would Jesus? How many of you know Jesus was culturally relevant? He was. He addressed the things that you and I look back on and we see them as historical. They were cultural to him, they were they were uh, modern. I mean, it was it was what was happening. In his, and we're going to actually our first text. We're going to read one verse from Matthew twenty four, verse four. We're going to read it. We're just going to scroll real quickly. You can remain seated. Let's just go ahead and read these down just real quickly. But Matthew twenty four and verse four is a. I want you to catch this word. Jesus answered and said unto them, "Take heed that no man deceive you." Now, the reason why I'm saying that just real quickly when I say I'm gonna, I'm just going to give you the brief context. We're going to read just a few verses of scripture, and I always want to give you the context. The context was that Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the city itself, and it would take place within 40 years of when he uttered these words on the Mount of Olives. I don't know if that can be more culturally relevant. Let me give you the balance to that. What would that be like? That would be like if you were in Washington, D.C., and you were taking a tour and you were there, and you were walking uh, past many of the monuments right there in the heart of all the, you know, the national heritage of the United States, and a prophet was sitting on the steps of perhaps the Lincoln Memorial out in front of the Washington Monument, or out in front of the White House, or out in front of uh, the Capitol itself, but somewhere in that general vicinity, and this prophet had a small group of, uh, of people gathered around him, and this prophet said, let me tell you, So let me tell you, within 40 years, everything that you see is going to be destroyed. What would that do for you if you heard that? What would you, would you make plans? And and if you, if you were, if you were, if you followed that prophet, if you believed he was truly a prophet of God, would you begin to alter your life, your aspirations, your career? Because this thing's going to go down. That's what happened in Matthew 24. That's exactly what happened. Jesus said, this temple and all this city, he said, they're not going to leave a stone unturned. Let me tell you, 40 years later, it happened exactly as Christ said. Jesus is warning them of people that would deceive them and tell them that it wasn't going to happen. False prophets, false Christ. He said, I'm here to tell you it is going to happen. But he said, but now before I do, take heed that no man deceive you. Did y'all catch that? So look at that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. We're going to take about 10 minutes to lay a foundation. In this particular passage, I'm not going to develop it, but this is Paul writing here. He said, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. There's those three words. Be not deceived. Catch it. We're going to, neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. 
Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. In this context, Paul now is writing, but notice when he says, be not deceived, where do you think he got that from? Let no man deceive you, said the Christ, the Messiah, now the apostle says, be not deceived. And he said, he's, the context is sinful lifestyle choices made by unrighteous people that result in them not inheriting the kingdom of God. Had we read the 11th verse, and we may read that later, he says, and such were some of you. He said, but now you are sanctified, justified, now you're washed. Thank God today. Don't let me get preaching too early. 2 Timothy 3 and 13. Here he says, but evil men and seducers shall... King James, I guess you don't know what wax means. When you all think of wax, you think of your car, your boat, or your shoes, for those of us that were in the military. But wax means grow. In, the, in, the, in that old, this old uh, English language here, but evil men and seducers shall grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. So the context is seducers will persecute those who preach and teach the truth. But if we were to read the entire context there of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, but you continue in what you have learned from a child. How many know these young adults that are scattered throughout this building? It's very important that they're here. And I know that many of them, you're like, like, Pastor, you don't know how hard it is to get my children to come to church every Sunday. Oh, yeah, uh, I had six children here, and I don't know how hard it can be. Trust me, I know how hard it can be. But at the same time, let me tell you, we're speaking something into them. And we're hopefully doing it in a counterbalance to the cultural things that are taught to them in a variation of ways. And so, so they're very, I'm so glad that these kids and these teenagers and these uh, in-between teenagers, uh, these teenagers, what do they call those? Preteens. Okay, well, that's a little bit more. Yeah, pre, we'll just say preteens, you know, like Alyssa said. So the pre I'm, I'm so glad you're here and that you take the time. You give me about 45 minutes of your week every week for me to be able to speak to you. Because here's a warning. Paul said this. He said, men are going to try to deceive you. And so we want you to learn the truth. Paul said, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Where's the truth contained? Listen, the old song said, the B-I-B-L-E, that's, I can sing too. Right? That's the book for me. I hope I'm not standing alone on the Word of God. But if I have to, I will. Right? Because that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E. That's what Paul said. Titus chapter number 3. Now he, I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's no, there should be no hypocrisy in the, in the heart and minds or no, or no, uh, sell, uh, there, no judgment in, the, in a believer because we know the nature of sin. We know what it's like to be a sinner by nature and a sinner in our practice our practices and our lifestyle. And then we know what it is like to be redeemed by the glorious power of Christ. And he said, for we ourselves, here's who we used to be. We were sometimes foolish, disobedient. What were we? Deceived. And when we were deceived, we did what? We served divers, lusts, and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, and we were hateful, and we hated one another. Correct? That's the context. So again, that's pretty easily understood. But now you're washed. If we had read the fourth verse, but now you are washed. 1 John 3 and 8, little children. Let no man deceive. Did I put down the right one? That'll work. That's not the right one. I gave them the wrong text there. But the text I intended to say, but I like that one too. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The text I intended to put up there was little children let no man deceive you. 1 John 1 and 8. I got this one right. 1 John 1 and 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So it's one thing to be deceived by someone else, but if you get to the place where you're arrogant and you're unwilling to look and examine your own heart and life, let me tell you what you're doing. You're deceiving your own self, right? And the truth is not in us. Listen, the first person that I examine is, and most of the time, the only person I examine is the man in the mirror, right? Because... That's fully the one person I can be fully accountable for, right? And I don't want sin dwelling inside of my heart and life. True believers, context is this. True believers walk in the light as he is in the light. And we confess our sins as they are revealed by the light. That's the context. Go back and read it. 
Now, I want to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to just kind of glean through this real quickly. And we're, we're going somewhere. Now, I'll have to read this very quickly, but you remain seated. We're going to do so today because it's, the, it's a little bit longer passage. But stay there with me first. Ephesians chapter number 1. Say, Pastor, we are supposed to be looking at these controversial subjects through the lens and through the teachings of Jesus. Well, see, I actually believe that all the scriptures are the teaching of Jesus. Because he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So, but, but we will get to the actual things that Jesus himself, the red letter edition. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love. How many of you know that's important? As Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering, there it is, Joe, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Isn't that right? But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Well, that's a, that's a great place to say amen, but I didn't get any, but we'll just press on. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, how many of you know this is not a complete list of sin? This is just a, a, a category. This is just a, just a brief exhortation about certain things here. But Paul is putting us in the context that this is not convenient. This is not how a Christian should live and function. Even the way you speak. Or even as referred to earlier, the way you think. For this you know, again, has no inheritance. Verse 5. Let no man, there it is, verse number 6. Let no man do what? Right there, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Let no man what? Deceive you with what? With vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you therefore partakers with them. Pause real quickly. I still believe in the wrath of God. I know in our culture today, it doesn't seem to be just as easily acceptable for preachers to get up here and thunder about eternal damnation. But here's the reality. The wrath of God is twofold. It's either been exhibited in the cross of Calvary where God wounded his son on the tree, where he announced his judgment on the tree, or it's reserved until the day of wrath. Right? He either absorbed that wrath for you on the tree, but if you reject that atoning sacrifice, then there is judgment to come. I believe that I can preach a loving God and yet also preach God as the eternal judge. I believe I don't have to defend God's nature for you. You can't make him into something that you want him. He designed you and he wants to make you into something pleasing to him. Our culture wants to make God into something pleasing to us. We call that idolatry, but that's another sermon. Let's go a little bit farther. For you were sometimes darkness. That's who we used to be. Right, But now we are light in the Lord. We're going to walk as children of light. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Man, sometimes a line has to get drawn. Maybe that's why there is an urgency being created in the hearts of the American church is because maybe the line is becoming a little bit more definitive. Where God is putting us in a place where you're going to make a decision, right? So we see this, and have no fellowship, but rather reprove them. For he says, it's even a shame to speak of those things which are done to them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. If we don't shine the light, then people will live in darkness and not even know it. Not even know that there's a way out, correct? He said, but all things are reproved or may manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, man, this is a word for the American church. Awake thou that sleepeth and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Verse 16 says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And then verse 7, and there's really no good place to draw this off, but I, I chose, even though I left off verse number 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But verse 17 says that we are to not be unwise, but we are to understand what is the will of the Lord. We should have discernment. It's fair for us as the church to say God has given us enough understanding by the Word of God that we can say God has approved of this or disapproved of this. Correct? So we're going to pray today, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us to not be deceived. 
So the message entitled today is to let no man deceive you. Father, I'm humbled to be here, and I have a church family, Father, from young to older among us today that are zealous for the truth. I believe that. Now, God, some have come out today because they've heard of what God is doing at First Assembly. Many are very consistent. They're here every week. But others have come because they're like, what's going on down there? I'm, kinda, I'm checking this thing out because God's up to something. I can tell it. Now, God, as I do so, that means, as I acknowledge that, that means that not everybody, God, understands my motive. Those that have been here for 17 years, Father, I believe that they understand a measure of my motive. And they, don't, they know that there's not malice, and there's not bitterness, and there's not hate in my heart. There's simply a desire for the truth and to warn my church family to let no man deceive them. That's my heart's desire. Father, and most of my church family, God, they, they know that. But, Father, there may be some among us today that you're going to have to work in their heart and lives. They're, they're just going to have to see this. What does the Scripture say? At the end of the day, Father, help them to be able to process this based upon not what the preacher said, but what does the Scripture say in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. That word deceived very, very quickly, so I can put you in a little bit. A common understanding of it, let no man deceive you. We read it, whether it was be deceivers or deceives, or it perhaps even deceiving, deceiving and being deceived is how Paul used it. It's the word planeo in the, in the original language of Greek. And I kind of always put out a, um, so, you know, something that says, I attempt to pronounce Greek words. Really, Cavenders is about the most Greek that I know. But, you know, it sounds kind of spiritual to you when I say it was found in the original language. And however, but it, it simply means to roam or to stray from the truth. That's what the word deceive. And so, let me get, Jesus used this word right here when he taught about the lost sheep parable. Remember that parable? He said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them go astray. That's where the word plano again. It simply means go astray. Let no man lead you astray. That's the warning from all throughout, beginning in Jesus' teaching in Matthew, all the way through the epistles. And I quoted from both Peter, or not Peter, but from Paul and the beloved John. Each possessed a warning of being led astray because you could be deceived by seducers, by lies, by false prophets, by fair words, one passage said, or even, and I wanted to note this, even yourself. You can deceive yourself if you're not careful, right? And that's what the word of the Lord charges us. This implies that there is truth that can be received. Because isn't that what we're in pursuit of, truth? Isn't that what we believe that God's word is absolute truth? That's our belief as Christians, and we want to know it. But we live in a generation where Paul, or excuse me, Peter warns where they will twist the truth. They will manipulate the truth. And so it implies that there is truth that can be received, applied, and followed, leading one down the right path. And these, but there are also lies and myths and false teachings that can cause one to listen to go astray. Because we are deceived. We are led astray. Ultimately, it can lead you astray to the point where you can face the wrath of God. Did y'all hear that? It can actually lead you to the place where your heart could grow hardened against God and someone could actually face the wrath of God. So last week, I sought to address one of the major political religious issues of our day. And I put it that way in my notes, political slash religious issues of our day, and that was abortion. And I, thought, and I sought to do so through the life and the teachings of Christ. And, and I made the statement that Christ didn't address this issue just plainly, but there were some teachings that I think if you looked at it objectively, you could say it validated that life begins in the womb based upon the Word of God. If you have not listened to that message, we weren't able to put it on Facebook Live, but we were able to put it on our podcast, and you can go to HeberFirst.com and you can listen to that message in its entirety. Today, I'm going to deal with the most controversial and the most sensitive, even more sensitive than the abortion issue, the most difficult one for me to even address. It takes courage. I'm not saying pat me on the back because I'm being courageous. No, I have to fight through fear and anxiety in order to have the ability to stand up here in this pulpit because I don't want to be labeled what I'm already going to be labeled. And that is, I'm going to deal with today, through the life of teachings of Jesus, how would Jesus respond to the LGBT movement with its variance and its far-reaching dogma? You say, now, Pastor, why would you do this? Because your children are going to be influenced. They already are, and so are you. 
And they're influenced through the media, through the public school, and many times even through false religious narratives. Through somebody who will take the Word of God and will twist it to fit their modern-day political objective. But I'm going to base mine upon the historic teachings of the Word of God. What I believe, as Paul told Timothy, when he challenged Timothy in his day, he said, Timothy, he said, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. And he said, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. They're able to correct you, instruct you, reprove you, and direct you in doctrinal truth. And therefore, it behooves us to know. So can I do that today? Listen, can we talk about this? And I'm not having dialogue, and I'm not having discussion. Yes, I understand this is a teaching. My objective is to teach you from what I believe is the accurate biblical way and means of understanding this subject you have to dialogue amongst yourself. You have to have discussion. You as a parent, you have to be able to talk with your children about this very sensitive subject, right? And so, again, I know that I'm not having debate. This is not being debated here today. This is just simply me teaching a particular doctrine. I've wrote the question, can we do this without, as often alleged, without bigotry or homophobic notion? I believe we can. I really do. But unfortunately, anything that's said that does not affirm the lifestyle choice is always referred to as bigotry, homophobic speech, and hateful rhetoric. And I'm just being honest. And I see, as I say this, I am extremely gentle and compassionate because there may be somebody under the sound of my voice. I don't know who has struggled with homosexual tendencies. Correct? And so that's the very possibility. And again, I'm not trying to shame or expose in any sense. I'm trying to teach a scriptural truth, to teach a scriptural truth. And so, again, without a doubt, this is where we are at today, where you can't say anything unless you affirm the lifestyle choice. Tolerance is only to be administered to the LGBT community. It should not be expected from them. That's the narrative today. Tolerance is not my pursuit, though. Acknowledging the truth is, and not being deceived is my pursuit here today. In the Gospels, let me go ahead and establish this. You and I don't find any direct reference to homosexuality. Did you know that? In the Gospels, what do you mean by the Gospels? Pastor Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the record of the four, what's known as the evangelist. We do not find any direct reference to homosexuality. But we do in the New Testament epistles. We lightly read one of those earlier. Paul references it multiple times, especially among the Gentile churches. Now, Pastor, why do you believe? What's the reason that we don't have direct reference in the New Testament Gospels? It is my personal belief. It is because it had been strictly forbidden in the law of Moses. And it is very possible that there were Jews that practiced homosexual lifestyle at the time of Christ, but it would have been done in secret. It would not have been out of the closet. And so he did not necessarily address it openly. But can we ask or presume or rightly divide what would Jesus' take beyond the movement today, which has expanded considerably from homosexual lifestyle to transgenderism or to gender neutrality? Is that the way to say it, neutrality? Right? To gender neutrality. So it's expanded greatly. Is there any way for us to safely conclude that this should be the Christian's response after we have thoroughly searched the Scriptures, including the life of Christ? I think it's very, very important. And especially, let me say this, I keep going back to the young adults. There are many young adults, and some of which under the sound of my voice, that you do dialogue with friends. Mine and Alyssa's conversation has, keeps me in a, an awareness of this because the younger generation, this particular subject is not as taboo, excuse me, for, like, for lack of better words, as it was to the older generation. So they converse about it more openly and more freely. And they want to have, those that are serious about their faith, want to have a true doctrinal basis in their dialogue with someone right, who may be deceived, right, and so I, I, so this is very real, and also there are many of you, there might, not only there might be somebody that's struggling themselves, but it might be somebody in your family, somebody that's a professed homosexual, and you say, pastor, you're trying to say, us, you, if you'll be patient with me, you'll see where I stand on how you should treat your family and friends that you may know that are homosexuals, you say, pastor, well, I'll go ahead and get out, we're supposed to be kind to everybody, we're supposed to walk in love to everybody. And that's just, I mean, I, I'm not going to make it. The, they wanna, the world wants to make a special category, but I'm not going to make a special category. 
I want to I be kind to everybody. Jesus even told me to pray for my enemies, even if there's somebody that's an enemy, direct opposition to what I teach or preach. And so let's go a little bit farther. So we're, let's go. Can we look at this? through? Let's go to the, the most obvious, Matthew chapter number 19. Because it's a broader narrative, we're going to look at it. This is the most famous, one of the most famous. We'll look at it real quickly. We might not read it all, but we'll glean it very, very quickly. Are y'all out there today? I mean, no, it's important to be in church in a church like this that addresses these issues. I have to. If I can't, church family, I might as well just fold up my preacher's uh, cloak and robe and go and just sit on the farm and watch the cows all week. If I can't take the moment to charge you from a biblical basis to meet these cultural issues head on, right? Because the only way somebody can be delivered from deception is if they are confronted with the truth, right? So in Matthew chapter number 19, this is when Jesus is asked a question about divorce. And it's, the narrative is verses 1 through 12, and for the sake of time, I won't read it all. But in this question about divorce, they, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are coming, and their objective is to catch Jesus in his words. That's the whole objective, is always to catch Jesus in his words, because they're looking for something to accuse him, because they are, they've become enemies of his teaching. And so they ask whether or not it was lawful. They're going to the Mosaic Law, especially a certain clause in the Mosaic Law that allowed uh, a husband to divorce his wife. It wasn't on both ends. It was only from the male to the female where he could divorce his wife. And so they're putting Jesus in this moment. Is he going to affirm the law? Is he not going to affirm the law? And so we can see that. It had become frivolous. That little moment, Jesus, in verse number 8, as he began to answer this, he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. He said, but from the beginning it was not so. And so, but notice what Jesus did. When they were posing this question to him from the law, he answered it from another place in the scripture because Jesus in verse, uh, where is it where he said, have you not read? Verse number four, when it was first presented unto him, it was in verse three, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Well, Jesus said, well, have you not read? So you may think you've read it all, but how many know sometimes there's more to it? There's a bigger picture. Let's look at it. Let's find the balance of it. Out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And so in doing so, Jesus referenced the part of Genesis. They were quoting from uh, probably Leviticus. But in this particular passage, Jesus said, I'm going to take you back to the Genesis. And in the Genesis, he said what? He said, at the beginning, he made them what? Say it with me. Don't be ashamed. Right? There's only two, what is it? Genders, right? There's only two genders. And so God at the beginning made them the original created genders, male and female. And so then in the context of marriage, a man cleaves to his wife. And a, come on, and a female cleaves to her husband, correct? So now obviously the LGBT dogma has moved into gender neutrality, correct? So in the biblical sense, in the teachings of Christ, what would he have said? He said, have you not read? I believe if he was here today, and if he was exposed to that question, he would say about gender neutrality, he would say, have you not read in the beginning? He would say, at the beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have legitimate, meaning it's in their flesh, it's their flesh and desires, that could be sexual temptation in the area of homosexual uh, uh, temptation or, or desire. But see, we know, as Christians, we know something called the fallen nature. We know the far-reaching effect of the sin of Adam, right? And the failure of the human flesh as the end result. So we understand that. Perhaps they do not, but we do, correct? And I'm not necessarily trying to oppose all that's taught in the world, but I am trying to say there should be a moment when the church can unify once again on these subjects. We ought to be able to. I believe that. Is it biblical then? Listen, obviously the LGBT dogma has moved into gender neutrality. Is it biblical in the sense of looking at, listen to this, it is biblical. Let me clarify that. It's, here's the biblical notion. In the sense of looking at nature, God created, his created expectation was that we said male and female. Because God said male and female were to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Isn't that what God said? Male and male cannot. Right? Now, I'm just trying to add, I'm, be, let no man deceive you. Right? And so female and female cannot. 
So I think in one sense, you and I can conclude in the words of the Apostle Paul that the lifestyle is against nature. But it's against nature, and Jesus affirms the natural created order of male and female. So let's go a little bit farther. We'll catch up to that in a moment. So remember, Jesus said, let no man... Now that that passage doesn't address homosexuality specifically, I know that. Christ does not. We're going to get to another passage that's very important in a moment. But the other epistles do. And remember this. How can I pretend that the epistles do not matter and they are not the teachings of Christ? You say, well, they're the teachings of Paul. Or they're the teachings of James. Or the teachings of John. Well, let me just tell you something today. You would not know a single word about the man Christ Jesus if it were not for the teachings of the apostles. Right? Apart from Josephus, the Jewish historian who briefly, in one paragraph of his volumes of his work, alluded to this man Christ Jesus, we have no other historical record. But we've got the record of the evangelists, and from the evangelists we have the record of the apostles, and we have the record of the apostle Paul, who was added as a man born out of time. But he too had a face-to-face encounter with a living Christ on the Damascus Road. Right? And so we believe that if I'm teaching the teachings of Christ by teaching the epistles, time's not going to allow me, but on your own, you read Romans chapter number 1, verses 16 through 32, where the Bible plainly, as Paul argues in the sense of pagan idolatry, he said, man left the natural usage of the woman, and man burned in his lust for another man. So Paul describes it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 was a part of our dialogue. 1 Timothy 1 and 10, where the words effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, and vile affections are used by the apostle. But how and what would Christ have believed? And this is what I got to dialogue with you today. Are y'all out there today? Listen, I'm, I, I, I get excited not because I want to be labeled a homophobic, not because I want to be labeled a bigot or somebody who's hateful. I get excited because the truth will set you free. I get excited about that we can know the truth. See, man sat in darkness, held by the blindness of religion and in the bondage of satanic deception until the man Christ Jesus came. And when he came, he began to shine the light and he began to reveal the Father. And in doing so, he said, if you continue in my word, then you're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I believe that every person that struggles with same-sex marriage, I believe, this is my way, you can be set free because he that the Son sets free is free indeed, glory to God. I believe that with all of my heart. So what would Christ have believed? He would have believed the truth. Here's what it comes down to. Well, what is sin? That's the three-letter word that nobody likes to talk about, right? What is sin? Is it a sin? Does anybody remember when Cory Booker, the, uh, the liberal senator from, where is he, New Jersey, about three years ago when there was a particular judge that was being confirmed and how he just hammered her over and over again. Do you believe homosexual lifestyles are sin? Do you believe homosexual lifestyles are sin? Because if you do what he was saying, then you are not uh, worthy to be a judge. That was, that was his perception on it. And so we seek to know the truth by letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So what is sin? 1 John 3 and 4, look at this verse real quickly. Whatsoever, whosoever committed sin transgresses the what? Now listen, we're going to get somewhere here today. The law, for sin is the what? The transgression of the law. The three-letter word law there at the end of that text of Scripture in the original language of Hebrew, not Greek, is Torah. And in what we think of the law, that is the Genesis through the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, the five books of the Mosaic law. That's what we call it, the Torah. That's the transgression of the law. So hold on to this. So this is John the Beloved who pillowed his head on the bosom of Christ at the night of the Passover. It, John the Beloved, later the aged apostle, is saying, whosoever committed sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So hold that in your thought. Obviously, Christians in today's culture have a very negative view of the law. They often cite Paul's reference, we are not under the law for a way uh, in sense of actually removing it from our theology, and that's a shame. Because Paul said, when he taught Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable. So we don't just tear it out. Dr. Brassfield, since our conversation three weeks ago, I've gone back and I'm rereading Bonhoeffer. 
book about Diedrich Bonhoeffer and how the deception of Germany would allow the dogma and the doctrine and the mindsets of an entire nation to be so manipulated that they would sanction the killing of six million Jews. How is that? How could something like that take place? Because they tore out the old covenant. They elected a a speaker or a minister over the head of the national church. He stood in front of a vast host of people and he said, we got to tear out Genesis through Malachi. And then he said, we got to begin to replace and rewrite the New Testament. And he deceived a nation. We're on the edge of seeing the entire nation being deceived. Let's go a little bit farther. What about the law? Paul did not view the law negatively. Let me just tell you this. Paul did not view the law negatively. Let me tell you, the law was a holy document. It was a gift from God. Man was an idolater, Shane. Man was slaughtering his own children of pagan deities because man had a desire to worship the Creator because he's the creation. But he didn't know how to worship the Creator until a man named Moses went up on a rock-hewn mountain and he heard the audible voice of God and he carried with him two blank tablets and the invisible finger of God came out of heaven and wrote a law on stone and Moses came down with the law of commandments in his hand and he said, let me teach you how to worship. Let me teach you how to live it's a divine document and the church today we want to act like it doesn't have any part of our doctrinal belief what about the law Paul affirms its purpose in Romans 7 verse number 7 let's put that one on there he said what is it he said is the law sin some of you think it is God forbid nay I had not known sin but by the law I wouldn't even know how many know that pain is important Did y'all know that pain is important? Because if you didn't have pain, you could be working outside and you could cut your leg and not even know it. And you could bleed out laying in your bed at night because you had no pain in your leg. Paul said, sometimes it's painful, but I had not known sin unless the law told me, hey, that's sin and you need to go a different direction. Come on now. Let's Let's go a little bit farther. He said, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Chapter 3, verse number 20 of the book of Romans. Without the knowledge of sin, I will continue to sin and I will suffer the damaging effects of sin and the consequences of sin without even knowing it. Because I was deceived and led astray. You know, I want you to look at it this way. For you teenagers here today, it's the yellow line and the white line. As you're learning to drive, that's very, very important. Hello, come on, parents. I mean, it's very important, but you know what? The yellow line and the white line do not prevent you from crossing over into other traffic or running off the edge of the road and crashing into a tree, right? You have to make the conscious decision that it's funneling you in the right direction. You can cross over if you want to. You can cross over into your own ignorance because you were deceived and suffer the consequences of sin because sin, once it morphs fully, it produces death. We understand this. Because I was deceived and led astray. Paul said the law in 1 Timothy 1, the law is good if we will use it lawfully, if we'll use it correctly. So why did you say all that, Pastor? Well, what about Christ? What would Christ have said? Matthew chapter 5, let's turn there real quickly. Are y'all still out there? Matthew chapter number 5, verse 17 through 19. Here's what Paul, Jesus said now, because we're trying to look at this through the lens of Jesus. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse number 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from what? The law till all be fulfilled. Now, let's read on the last verse. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach the same, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to keep that culturally relevant to Jesus' time. Obviously, Jesus said, I came as a minister under the law. He was born under the law. He ministered to Jewish people under the law. And he said, in the sense of being fulfilled, what we believe fulfillment is, is that the sacrificial demand for atonement was fulfilled in the blood of Christ that's our belief that we believe that the law was good if a man used it lawfully towards righteous living but what it failed in is it could not produce justification could it it could not take away all of your sin debt actually some of the sins that we're going to talk about in a moment before I get ready to to close there was no sacrifice for the sin that we're going to talk about in a moment there was none there was only death 
But how many of you know this man, this man, by one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God? The blood of bullocks and of goats could in no wise take away sin. But that blood, that all-sufficient blood that flowed, come on, from the lowest valley to the highest mountain, that reached all the way back and reached all the way ahead, took away all of our sin debt and made us acceptable unto God. Yes. But that doesn't mean that we still don't learn from the law. That divine, holy document that Jesus said, if you're teaching people to not look at it and learn from it, you're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's good preaching for a good-looking guy like myself. Where were we going to? We'll say, Pastor, where are we going to go? We're about to go to the law. Go ahead. I want to hear your Bibles. Your pages are going to be stuck together. I want to hear. I can hear people. Because it's all stuck together. You're like, Where's the Leviticus? Where's that at? Malachi, Leviticus, Psalms, Leviticus. It's way back towards the early part of the book. Go to the book of Leviticus for just a moment. Leviticus. Oh, my gosh. I can already hear people posting. Our preacher preached about Leviticus. Shatakaya Mosia. We got a second message in tongues in here. Stay with me, church family. We've got to catch this. The book of Leviticus. Remember, the divine oracle of God, the law, was given to ancient Israel because they lived amongst the Canaanites. They came out from amongst the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped ten gods that God judged in the Exodus. But they were going into the land of Canaan possessed by people who worshipped false gods. They had prostitutes. They had sexual activity with prostitutes. And then they slaughtered the unwanted children in, in pagan sacrifice to Molech. And here's what God said about their lifestyle. He said, the Lord said, verse 1, speaking to the children of Israel and saying to them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt where you used to live, you shall not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm about to bring you, you shall not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall do what? Verse 4, keep my, because my judgments are holy. My judgments are for your good. My judgments will keep your, your, your family safe. It'll keep you out of sickness and disease. Come on now. It'll keep you out of depravity. It'll cause your mind to be strong. You won't fall into depression. You won't fall into sorrow of heart. Are you all out there today? If you'll, follow, if you'll just do what I tell you to do. Verse 5, you shall keep my statutes of judgment. Because if you do them, you're going to live in them, saith the Lord. If you'll just do this, how many of you know, choose life. The preacher said last week that you might live. All right, what does the law have to say about this very controversial subject? The 22nd verse, read it there with me. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is it's an abomination. It's a very, very strong words. I understand that. It's listed as transgression, sin, abomination. Pastor, what was the consequences under the Mosaic law? The 20th chapter, the 13th verse says that they were put to death. It's very harsh. People can hardly hear this. Remember, God is protecting a society. A society that he wants to bring to the apex of human history when his son is going to come to the virginal womb of the children of Israel. He's protecting that people from all the wickedness of human frailty and fleshly desires. So, but listen, listen, listen. In Leviticus, God reveals why such harsh judgment. It is harsh judgment. In the 20th chapter, I believe it's the 22nd verse, but... Uh, maybe it may have not have been the 22nd verse. Let me just see. Yes, it is. It says, it, he said, you keep my statutes, you'll live. He said, because if you don't, the land itself, the land itself will spew you out. If you become idolaters and pagans, philosophers, and you reject me, and you reject my way of living. How many know God is Elohim? He's the creator. And as the creator, he the, has the right to tell his creation how to live and how to be. Right? If you're the potter, come on, and you've got clay, you can mold it and make it and shape it in any way you desire. When I read the scripture, he is the potter and you are the clay. It's not the other way around. And so he designs it for his own pleasure. That's what the Bible says in Revelation, for your own pleasure, Lord, for your own pleasure. That's why we call ourselves worshipers. That's why we want our worship to be a sweet fragrance. And it's not just in praise and adoration. It's in a humble lifestyle before the Father. I know I'm preaching a long time today, but you're not going to get to hear us on Wednesday night, so you might as well let me have double overtime right now. I would have given anything to see the Hogs game go into overtime yesterday. Good goobly goob. Don't even get me started on that one. Whew. About, I need to repent after that. All right, so stay here. Christ in Matthew 5, what did he do? 
He affirmed the teachings of the law. Didn't he affirm the teachings of the law? You say, well, then, Pastor, did he intend for people to be put to death? That's a really strong question, isn't it? That's what we're going to answer right now as I close this message. Are out there today? We're here to look through the lens of scriptural teaching. Though we don't have an exact teaching from Jesus on homosexuality, we do have on adultery. Why is that important? We let scripture interpret scripture. Adultery is listed in Leviticus 18 right beside homosexuality. Right? How many of you know in the court of law, how many of you know it's precedence many times? Adultery had the same penalty, death. Let's go to this famous text. This will be the last text, and I'll conclude, and I'll get out of your way. Y'all out there today, this is the final home front. It's one of the most famous passages of all of Scripture. Here in this, once again, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, I won't read it in its entirety. I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. The religious leaders of Jesus' day are hoping to catch him in his words. What are they hoping for him to do? To say something contrary to the law that they can brand him a religious heretic and authorize them to kill him. That's the objective. And so they find a woman caught in adultery. Now, I know every lady here has the rightful thought in your mind when you read that. How does it take just one caught in adultery? Well, that's a fair, right? Come on, that is fair. I don't know why, because they weren't concerned. They weren't concerned about it wasn't about the woman. It wasn't about the woman. It was about the man, Christ Jesus. That was the entire objective. They bring her into the midst of his presence, and they cast her in front of him, and they point shame on her, and then they go and they quote the law. They quote Leviticus. Hold on now. Let's go there. And they say, this is sin according to what? The law. You said the law is not to pass away. And he said, and then she was caught red-handed in adultery. And he said, now she's supposed to be, they said stone. The Bible in Leviticus says put to death. It doesn't say stone. So it's kind of a half-truth that they're throwing out there. And so Jesus hears it. You know, you know the, I think you know, right? And so then they say, well, what are you saying? That's what the law says. What sayest thou? Verse 5 of John chapter 8. That, how many of you know that's what we as Christians need to know? We need to know what does Jesus have to say about culturally relevant issues, some as sensitive and as difficult as dealing with same-sex attraction, right? What would Christ say, right? What would Christ say? Let's, let's, let's answer that today in closing. So here we go. Jesus then stoops down, and he writes on the ground as if he didn't even hear them. But they keep pressing him. And there's a lot of people that talk about what he wrote. I'm not here to talk about what he wrote. I'm not talking about what, what, why, why he did stoop down. Then he stands up and he says these famous words. He that is without sin among you. Come on, now we got to celebrate this, right? Because such were some of you. If you can't celebrate this, you can't celebrate redemption, right? He said these words. He said, he that is without sin among you, you get to cast the first stone at her. And then he didn't do anything else but drop back down on his knee and start drawing in the dirt again. And then the Bible says, glory to God. Listen, he said, the accusers, convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one until Jesus was left alone with the woman. And then he asked her, and you know she's broken, she's humiliated, she's hurting, she knows she's sinned, she's been accused by the leaders and by the law, and her heart is convicted before God. And he asked her a simple question, woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? The stones fell that day, but they fell silently at their feet as they walked away. And she responds, and she says, no man and no, let's read this real quickly, verse 11. We're going to read and stop, and then we're going to answer. Neither do I condemn thee. Stop! We ought to celebrate right there. Because such were some of us. We were fornicators, adulterers. We were in the bondage of sin. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of God, by the overpowering work of mercy in His covenant, the new covenant cut in His blood, there is now a sacrifice for all sin. We ought to celebrate. Thank God I'm free and I'm free indeed. Glory to God. Neither do I condemn thee. Hallelujah. 
There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on. Who walk not after the flesh, but walk after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, it was weak through the flesh. Jesus Christ, on a tree called Calvary, gave His blood so that you could be set free. Glory to God. Neither do I condemn thee. Man, preacher, you get loud. I know, Joe, we shout. I can't help it. We're just radicals for Jesus today. Our sins were many, but he washed them away by the blood of the Lamb of God. Neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I. Hallelujah. Yes, I stop right there and I celebrate. But the culture wants to end. Stop and celebrate, but don't end. The culture ends the text there. Hmm. All right now. But we're not going to. Let's read the end. What would Jesus say to those struggling with the vice of homosexuality? If adultery is a sin of the flesh listed in Leviticus 18 alongside homosexuality, it was the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. And Jesus affirmed the law. He would say, go and sin no more. That's what he would do. I close here today in the name of Jesus. I close today. And I want you to hear this. Let no man deceive you. As believers, we believe homosexual behavior to be sinful. And it's akin to other sexual sins. Hmm? The individual needs to truly repent and avoid the lifestyle choice to walk in the light as he is in the light. Say, Pastor, that individual says, I struggle. I have temptations. We all struggle in other areas. Listen, it's not about special rights. If you want equal rights, we'll make equal rights, but not special rights. Right? The lie of the culture is you were created this way. You be you, it's the new normal. As believers, we don't condemn others for their sin, but we do hold to the truth in righteousness. If you are in the light, listen, 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 stay with me, I'm closing. Walk in the light. If you abide in him, you sin not. If you abide in Christ, then you will not continue in a lifestyle of sin. You're not afraid to acknowledge sin. Sin in my flesh, I'm not afraid to acknowledge it. I don't want to pacify it. If I pacify sin, then I'm going to be more willing to yield to it. But if I look at it detestable in my own flesh, if I lust or if I have hatred or malice or something in my flesh, if I identify it as sin, I'm more willing to say, God, by the grace of God, let me put it to death every day. That's why Paul said I die daily. Are you all out there today? Listen. It's not, listen, listen, to walk in, we say, well, this is the very issue that's come to the forefront, listen, of the cultural battle. What should you and I do? We should walk in love, we should be kind to all, but we should not affirm the lifestyle as the biblical way. I don't believe that Christ would. If he was here in the flesh today, I believe he would be just as kind to everybody as he was. The only people he really wasn't that kind to was the religious leaders. He was kind to sinners, wasn't he? He sure was. And, and he loved sinners. But it is no longer the accepted way. The folks who demand tolerance are very intolerant unless you affirm the lifestyle. And it's put us in a quandary. As previously noted, let me share this as I leave you today. Listen, listen, listen. This is very important. If this is my apex of this sermon, you have to hear. If, I, if former Vice President Biden does get into office, at his side and soon in his seat will be Kamala. Did y'all hear that? I said it anyhow, whether you liked it or not. At his side and soon in his seat will be Kamala Harris, who has personally presided over same-sex marriage ceremonies. Joe Biden said within the first 100 days of his office, he will pass the Equality Act. The Equality, I bet you haven't even looked up the Equality Act, have you? Some of, most of you have not. It will force religious institutions to hire homosexuals without discrimination. Soon after, listen to this, sermons and doctrines will be censored. It's already been attempted. The day can easily come when pastors are jailed for failing to affirm their lifestyle choice. Listen, then I wrote down here, then where all those Christians be who voted Democratic. Because they're going to go to church, and they're going to, man, we had such a powerful worship service. And they're going to say, where, 
Caleb will be, Caleb won't be here. Caleb will be down here alongside of Gracie and alongside of Candace, and they'll be weeping. And on the other side over here, Sister Sherry will be over here, and she'll be weeping. And then they'll be wondering, where, where, where's our, our worship leader? Where's JoJo at? And then there's Miss Ann and her family. They're over here weeping. And there's Katie, and she's weeping. And you're like, well, who's going who's gonna to preach this? Where's, where's, Pastor, where's Pastor Brown? He was jailed last week as a religiously intolerant, homophobic bigot. He was jailed for the crime of simply preaching the truth of his conviction. Don't you think that that's not a real possibility in the days ahead? Let no man deceive you. Let no man deceive you. It can happen. And those of you that voted along that line will go home. And you will not have heard your sermon. And you'll sit in your chair and you'll wait for your COVID stimulus check to come in. While the pastor sits in jail for preaching the truth in love. I pray, here's my conclusion as y'all stand up. I pray for those caught in the vice of homosexual behavior. And I have absolutely no malice in my heart. I honestly believe that I can acknowledge something, address it biblically, and not harbor hatred or malice. Rather, I can have compassion, grace, mercy, and kindness in my heart as I hold to the truth. You know what I want to see for people that struggle with homosexual tendencies? I want to see them through dialogue with someone like yourself who loves them enough to say, hey, this is a living entity right here. You get it inside you, and you can learn to mortify those fleshly desires. And you can become who God's called you to be. Pastor, how should I treat so-and-so? It might be your son or daughter, your close friend. I've already said it. I'm going to say it one more time. So that you can in no wise make me the next poster child as a homophobic bigot. You treat them like all others with love, with grace, with compassion and mercy. Yet, let no man deceive you. Hold fast to the truth. When opportunity is created, speak the truth in love out of a gentle and a broken spirit. Because such were some of us. We judge not lest we be judged. But we do speak the truth. Paul said, continue in the things you have learned. I say this as your pastor, be prepared. The battle for cultural identity has not yet hit the apex. It has not. Persecution for those who refuse to bow before culture and state-sponsored censorship is only beginning to mount. Let no man deceive you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But let no man deceive you. We pray for those who persecute us because that's for whom Christ died. But let no man deceive you. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. We're praying a corporate prayer in humility before God. I, have, I purposely avoided bringing my phone to know what time it is today so that I would not feel limited. I needed to finish this message, church family. I know that you could have been at a seeker-friendly church and had a 12-minute sermon and been out by 11 o'clock. Yet it's your pastor. Your pastor gave you probably an hour-plus word. But I want to ask you to do something. Would you measure that against the times that you have heard the dogma shared on the news in Hollywood, through songs, through culture, through teachers at the school? And yet once a year, twice a year, most likely once every three or four years, I've addressed the issue publicly for one small window of time for this purpose. Let no man deceive you. Hide the word in your heart. Would y'all pray for me right now? Would y'all pray with me? Who, without malice and without judgmental attitude, we pray for any and all who may be in the vice, who might be in the vice of homosexual attraction. It might be your friend. It might be a co-worker. It might be a brother or sister. It might be a, spouse, a former spouse. It could be. It very well could be. Will we pray? Would you all pray with me today 
come on, let's just make God's house a house of prayer. God, we really do. We pray, Lord Jesus, God, that people will come to the acknowledging of the truth. God, we believe with all of our hearts that men and women can be set free. I believe that with all my heart. I wouldn't stand on this stage, Father, with a, a camera in front of me and with an audience listening to my words if I didn't believe that that person could be free in the name of Jesus, that they could overcome, that they can mortify fleshly appetites and desires. If you will shine the light, God, on the knowledge of the truth, God, for their heart and mind, then they can be free. I pray for them today. But as much as I pray for them, I pray for myself to not be hateful, to not be, but, but not be hateful or to not be arrogant or to not have foolish talking, what Paul said, or jesting or any such nature, which many of us have probably done in times past. And we ask you to forgive us, God, Father, in the name of Jesus, and help us to care for people and show them love and adoration and affection, God, in the name of Jesus. But God, in doing so, let us do so from a position of rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, I believe that Jesus would say, if he were here in the flesh to this movement, he would allude and he would affirm to the teachings of Scripture, and he would say, neither do I condemn thee. There are no stones in my hand, he would say, but he would say, go and sin no more. I do believe that. I hold to it as biblically sound doctrine. I pray, Father, that that, that other pastors, other leaders, God, will have the courage, Father, to teach their church family. What I'm trying to do, God, is I wrap this up today. My church family, God, is going to go out and they're going to be ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors. They're going to, God, conversation. It might be around Thanksgiving. It might be in the school classroom. It might be at work, God. Whenever the opportunity is presented, let them be able to give answer to the hope that lies within them. And to be able to rightfully divide the word of God, the word of God, because that question is going to come to them: What sayest thou? That's what they ask. What did Jesus say? They're going to come to you, and they're going to say, "Well, what did Jesus say? What would He have said?" And you now are equipped, at least to some degree, to be able to answer. So today, God, I commit this message, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, to my church family. If I'm called as a pastor to help equip the saints, I'm going to go home today believing that I've done so. I leave this entirely in your hands, God. Give me the courage to face any criticism. Give me the courage, Father, to not shrink away if there are accusations made, God, about my motive or my intent. God, but to leave that entirely in your hands and to trust you. You're my shield and you're my buckler. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's children said, Amen and amen and amen. Let's put our hands together to thank the Lord for the presence of God. Love one another. You can be dismissed in love.